Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary-style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 10, Virtual Pets. Do they not stand in Australia? Yeah, not not as often. Like you'll see them occasionally in in the malls around Christmas time, but it's not as prominent. Yeah. Well, he's always here, you know, at the stores. And if you go ask him, he'll tell you exactly what products are selling. Because he knows. The kids all tell him what they want. So he, Santa Claus knows exactly what kids want for Christmas. He will tell you exactly what products are good and which ones are not selling. And he'll always say, the number one thing that people ask for is a puppy dog. Always. They just, what do you want for Christmas? A puppy dog. This is Rob Fulop. A game designer who, back in 1995, had good reason to be making a game about puppy dogs. You know, it was basically, what can you make in six months to nine months that worked, that that looked like a game? And so that was why what I did was I copied games. I mean, I did Night Driver, I copied Missile Command. I didn't try to invent new games on the 2600 until I think my fifth product... He'd been making games for years by that point. He'd started at Atari in 1978, straight out of an electrical engineering degree from UC Berkeley. Rob worked on lots of different games for Atari's home markets, though many of these were stripped-down versions of arcade hits. And it was at iMagic, a company he co-founded in 1981, that Rob started to make a name for himself. He had a hit and a feat of technological brilliance in 1982 game Cosmic Arc, which exploited a bug in the Atari 2600 hardware to draw what, at the time, was a remarkable background starfield effect. Now, for context, most games at this time, their background was all one solid colour. Years later, in 1986, Rob became part of a team building games for a kind of movie game device, codenamed Nemo. It stored data on VHS tapes and could swap back and forth between four video streams that it then combined with rudimentary interactive elements. And one of these games was an interactive movie called Night Trap. In Night Trap, the player had to watch surveillance footage of teenage girls in a house that's been targeted by vampires. There were traps that could be set off to protect the girls from these demons, and it was every bit as comical and campy as it sounds. Looks like a healthy bunch. Yes, it should be a good weekend. Too bad we must visit the Ogs tonight. I'd much rather stay here and enjoy our new guests. But it was at the time remarkably forward-thinking, a pioneering experiment in interactive entertainment, a noble early effort at combining two of the 20th century's greatest art forms for people to enjoy in their own home. But Night Trap never came out in this original form. Toymaker Hasbro had been slated to publish the game and the system it ran on, that Nemo, but they had a change of heart and cancelled both in 1989. Rob Vrillup went off to work on other projects, like a Sega Genesis 
modem from telecommunications giant AT&T that also got cancelled. And then he co-founded another company, PF Magic, to build video games. In the meantime, while his new company set to work on their first game, a pseudo 3D fighting game that was quite innovative itself, a few of his old colleagues formed a different company called Digital Pictures, and they hooked up with Sega to get Night Trap onto the new Sega CD system, which was a a, kind of add-on to the Genesis. The game was finally published in 1992, five years after its original creation. And that's where things got weird. Here was a game that was obviously out of its time, constrained by technological limitations that no longer existed. Reviewers thought it was tacky, dull, dated, like a B-grade movie that players could direct themselves, and destined for the dustbin of history. The game-buying public seemed to agree. But then, suddenly, Night Trap was thrust into the spotlight as the unlikely poster child of the video game violence debate. Instead of enriching a child's mind, these games teach a child to enjoy inflicting torture. The second game is Night Trap, which is a game set in a sorority house. The object is to keep hooded men from hanging the young woman from a hook or drilling their necks with a tool designed to drain their blood. Night Trap uses actual actors and achieves an unprecedented level of realism. It didn't matter that the goal of Night Trap was to prevent violence against women, or that the game featured neither graphic violence nor any sexually explicit scenes. US Senator Joseph Lieberman, who led this witch hunt, had never actually played the game, and he saw it as an easy target. He labelled it disgusting and offensive and chose it to kick off this witch hunt that later led to the creation of the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, or the ESRB. I'll go into details on this for a future episode, but I think it's important to mention it here as it provides context for what put Rob in the state of mind that would result in his game about puppy dogs. I'll let him explain. It was horrible. I, you know, it was... My family saw it on TV, and they said it was a bad game, and I couldn't defend it, because they they would never get and play it. They were not at that level. All they knew was that here it was on TV, on the news, and it was getting bashed around, and, there, and I made it. So people that were not in the know, it was very embarrassing to me. My girlfriend and I were fighting about it. I mean, it was, you know, it was a bad thing for me. Not at all. Only it was, it was, it was a... Uh... Um, do you have any... Um, any idea of what really made it such an easy target? There are so many other things that could have been targeted. We had live video. You know, you could see the girls. It was real video. And you could actually, I mean, by, by, by ignoring, by not saving these girls, you could cause them to go into a bad, into peril, right? So I could, I could indirectly cause a bad thing to happen to these girls, right? I just not by, by not acting, they would then go and get pulled off the stage by these monsters. So in a way, it was my fault or my as a player, it was up to me. And in that way, it seemed to be more meaningful. 
because I could see them, I could hear them screaming. You know, I mean, you know, it's just like a vampire movie, right? This silly, campy, interactive B-movie had been blown way out of proportion by fear-mongering and scapegoating. Like comic books and rock and roll, and even cinema and television and the humble paperback novel. Video games were blamed by the generation that preceded them for all of society's ills. Night Trap's relative familiarity as part game, part movie, made it the focal point for the outraged, unenlightened masses, afraid of a new medium they did not understand. Hurt and angered by the undeserved beating he and his creation had taken in popular media, Rob decided he should make a game that was as cute and innocent as possible. And it just so happened he'd been sitting on the perfect idea waiting for the technology to be ready for it. Well, I don't want to make a digital pet for years. Well, do you remember what gave you the initial idea? Uh, yes. The, the original idea for digital pets came from, uh, what's a product that you could, that we could give you away for free that you could never throw away? Now, what, what could I give you as a free piece of software that you would not want to ever delete? And that, and, and that, so that question, the answer to that question is a, is, a, is a pet. The problem had always been how to give the product away, how to suck them in so that they'd fall in love with their virtual pet and feel compelled to spend money to keep it. But by 1995, that problem was taken care of. They could distribute a trial version over the internet. So now he had the distribution site sorted. He had the pet to start with, puppies. He had the drive to do it, not just in response to the night trap controversy, but also for financial reasons, as his company was low on funds and needed a quick buck. And he also had the technology to build it, thanks to one of PF Magic's existing titles. And there was a game called Balls, which is a fighting game with spheres. And that, and if you make an object out of spheres, it would always, wherever you put the camera, if you set the spheres, you don't have to, it always looks good, right? Because a sphere is the only thing that you can move a camera around, and it always looks like a sphere. So we made a, so we, so that was where we made a pet. We made a, a dog out of spheres, out of the same technology we used for balls. And that was where dogs came from. It was a, it was a character made out of, built out of spheres. That's dogs with a Z. The concept was simple. Virtual puppies for your Mac or PC. Once you set the game up, you could choose from any of five dogs to adopt. And you'd have some time to play with them and introduce yourself before you committed to your choice. Then you'd have a puppy living within your computer screen. I was the creative director of the company. You know, so I had the, the, the design staff reported to me. Uh, there were two designers on our on our. Staff Andrew, Andrew Stern, and uh, Adam Frank, and you know we had we had many many sessions where we talked about how a pet would work and and all that. But I didn't do any of the code. A programmer named Ben Resner handled that part. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get in touch with any of these guys for an interview. But I was, you know, I did I did the the original, you know, the blueprint, the blueprint of the product. 
And then they was expanded from there. They added more behaviors. And we figured out how to do the, the, the animation, how to, how to make more and more uh, interesting animation over time. In dogs, your digital pet would run around on your desktop or within a separate window and chase or growl at your mouse pointer. You could play with your dog, either just with the mouse pointer or with some toys that you could drag out of a toolbox window pane. And you could pet them and give them food and water. If you pet them in just the right spot, they might roll around happily, seeking more petting, more scratching. And they'd sleep, of course. Puppies love to sleep. And they'd age. If you spent time with them, after a while, your cute little puppy would grow into an adult dog. If you neglected your dog, they wasted away. Leave them too long without food, and they'd die. In a savvy business move, to make absolutely sure that people would want to pay for the game, PF Magic only included five days worth of food in the free demo version. People would need to buy the game to get unlimited food. And of course, most would do exactly that, because nobody likes it when their pets die. Even if their pets are just digital creatures. Strings of, of binary code and, and pre-programmed behaviors. There weren't any energy or hunger bars or anything like that, as you'd typically see in a video game. Your virtual dog would communicate its needs to you in many of the same ways as a real dog. And over the next few years, as updates and sequels came out, this communication would of course get more sophisticated. So eventually, after a few games, you'd have dogs that would growl, bark, hide, cower, shiver, beg, wag their tail in all sorts of different styles, and exhibit whatever other kinds of body language and facial expression that you see from a real dog. Their behavior could be shaped by your actions as well. Although, in this first installment, most of those features were only very lightly simulated. And the learned behavior mostly involved doing tricks. We'll be talking more about the significance of dogs right after this short break. I have a new book out. It's called The Secret History of Mac Gaming, and it is packed with fascinating trivia, in-depth storytelling, and all sorts of cool stuff about the surprising ways that game developers innovated and experimented on the Mac in the 1980s and 90s. There's stories on the making of big and influential games like Myst, Marathon, Dark Castle, these huge hits, as well as forgotten greats like The Colony and Spaceship Warlock. And there are chapters on failures like the Pippin console and profiles of amazing people and companies like Ambrosia Software, or Cliff Johnson, Ray Dunican. You can find out more about what's in there and what people are saying about it and where you can buy it at the official website, secrethistoryofmacgaming.com. 
I also want to remind you that this podcast takes a huge amount of work to put together. Even when I do interviews over the internet, as I've done with this episode, I have to pour hours and days into research, transcribing, writing, editing, mixing, mastering, composing music, and doing all these little tiny things that combined take far longer than you'd think to finish. So if you want to make sure that I can keep producing more episodes or you just want to show your appreciation for what I've made so far, please consider making a donation via PayPal or Patreon. You can do one-time or recurring donations through paypal.me slash mossrc or make a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. Now let's get on with the show. Dogs wasn't the first virtual pet game. There'd been an obscure little Mac game in the mid-1980s called The Dog Show that involved adopting a street dog and teaching him tricks so that he could achieve his dream of winning a local dog show. It didn't feel much like owning a pet, more like being a, a trainer who conveniently doesn't have to worry about all the messy obedient stuff or feeding the dog, giving them a place to sleep. It was really laser focused on on teaching and practicing tricks. But in any case, Rob never knew anything about it. There was also a Commodore 64 game, a, a more famous one, called Little Computer People or House on a Disc as it was sometimes named, where you had a little man who lived inside a house that filled the screen. He'd write you letters, and you could encourage him to do various things around the house, though he had his uh, his own mind, his own agency. Rob had played that one, and he thought it was really interesting. But it's not a virtual pet game, so much as a a virtual dollhouse. And then there's the Tamagotchi, you might remember it from the late 90s. The digital pet that lived inside a keychain and conquered playgrounds all around the world. But Tamagotchi wasn't around yet either. Tamagotchi didn't hit Japan until the following year, and the rest of the world until mid-1997. So aside from a handful of aquarium simulators, and a few mini-game modes within popular console games. Dogs was the first case of a virtual simulated pet to really hit the mass market. And it was definitely the first to catch on. All, all around the same time, you know, that was, that was, so, you know, we knew a pet was, was a good product. We knew, you know, we didn't know how we were going to sell things to, to, you know, to girls and to, and to, you know, seven, eight-year-olds, because those kids typically don't buy a lot of software. Their parents, you know, buy educational software. So it was a different market. We were, you know, used to the, you know, the boys, 12 to 17, that was our market, you know. So it was a different, you know, we had to market to a whole different segment of people, right? Do you know what the the gender split ended up being for these games? Was it more female than male players? Yeah, yeah. For the pets, yeah, more female, for sure. Yeah, they were many, many women were into it. You know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of little girls played it. 
you know. Because you couldn't, you couldn't, there was no way to be bad at it. There was, was no, there was no, you didn't try to be good at it. You didn't try to win anything. And, and it was a nurturing product, right? It was all about nurturing and, and building and sharing. So, you know, what we didn't expect was the community that sprang up around the web with the hexing. We didn't expect that at all. That was totally organic. And was not, if we'd known about that, we would have made it easier to do. Hexing is the term fans invented to describe the modifications they figured out how to make to dogs and the other pets games that PF Magic made afterwards. Cats and pets and oddballs and even a baby's one. I'm hoping to do an episode of my other podcast, Glutophilia, that delves deeper into this community sometime later this year. But suffice to say for now that hexing is a process by which you change or add to the hexadecimal codes that the games used to define the appearance and behavior of pet breeds. So hexadecimal, for anyone who's unaware, is a numbering system, just like decimal and binary. But where decimal has 10 digits and binary has 2, hexadecimal has 16. So after the usual 0 to 9 that we're used to, it then goes up according to the first six letters of the alphabet, A to F. So you go 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, A, B, C, D, E, F. It's here, in hexing and the creation of custom breeds, that dogs and the pets series more broadly has its hidden legacy. It's easy to see how their success paved the way for the modern pets franchise. Which I think has very little to do with the original incarnation. And how it paved the way for other virtual pets games, like Nintendogs. But what often gets forgotten or glossed over is the impact PF Magic's dogs, cats, and pets, one, two, and three, had on the people who played them. The hexing community was huge, particularly after Pets 3, which was the first one to allow breeding, and which, with a 1998 release date, could benefit much better than its predecessors from the rising adoption of internet connectivity. Thousands of fans, mostly girls, came together to share and create new breeds of virtual cats and dogs. And for many girls, it was their first brush with computer code, with the kind of geeky technical stuff that had historically been open to both genders, but was by this point locked culturally in the domain of boys. One of the interesting things that that happened was that people attached to their pets so much that they would keep them for, for years afterwards. Oh yeah, I know. I still I, I got a letter like last year from a girl who still was keeping her pet, keeping, you know, Windows 95 going on her computer just so she could keep her pet. Is there any way it could port to like Windows XP? There isn't. But she was really sad to like, you know, have to... Yeah, people, yeah, people attached to something they care about. If they have to care about it... You know, if they have to nurture it, they become attached to it, you know. Had you anticipated that there would be such a deeper level attachment from some players? Well, they did for the Tamaguchi, too. 
people attach their Tamaguchis too. That was kind of where it became obvious that the more the more you the more this thing needs you, the more you are required to nurture it every day. The more you're going to attach to it, you want to be needed. You want to matter. You want to matter to something, and you matter to this pet. I mean, it needs you to do something. And it's click, click, click. It's like farm bill, right? Uh, in in retrospect, are you surprised at all that it took as long as it did for uh, virtual pets to become a big thing? I think we brought it out at the right time. It was right where, where the, the computer could do it, could, could, could actually, you know, the processing was there, the, the display technology was, you know, we really needed to have that 3D balls thing to make it work, to create, to create lots and lots of animation in a cheap way. I'm not that surprised. I mean, a lot of times these ideas, you have to wait until the technology lets you do it correctly for it to, you know. And I had done a lot of things early, like too early, like like Night Trap was too early for the, for the time. You know, it's you know, it, it, too early, it never works, it never, it never hits. That's the time to well. It came out at the right time. It wasn't trying to push it into something that it didn't want to do. Robert didn't stick around any further than Pets 3. In 1998, he and his business partner sold PF Magic, and with it, the rights to publish more dogs, cats, and pets games to the learning company. At that point, the learning company was packaging little companies to put them all together and sell them all to Mattel, medium, small, medium-sized companies, and we, we got scooped up in this massive acquisition that learning company, I think they bought 10 companies over the course of three months, put them all in the pockets and sold the whole thing to Mattel. So it was just a business, it was, you know, it was just a, it was a business deal, and I, and I was sad. I mean, I, I, you know, I was happy and sad at the same time. I mean, were, it was, you know, good and bad at the same time. I mean, I really looked, missed it, you know. And I missed where the product was going, and of course, it never got there after I sold it. They went some other, completely, it went some completely other way, you know. But that's how it works, right? These days, the franchise is owned by Ubisoft. There hasn't been a new entry since 2014, but there were a couple dozen themed pets games released on the Nintendo DS during its heyday a decade ago. Most of these had an emphasis on dressing up your pets, or watching them play with other pets, or putting them through radical activities like skateboarding and search and rescue. The graphics got better. And there was lots of stuff added. But the artificial intelligence algorithms guiding pet behaviors, which were really the the core of the original games, they never went much further. And they might have even gotten a bit simpler. Which I think is a shame. Virtual pets are somewhat out of vogue right now. It's possible that we'll see a resurgence soon, perhaps driven by the rise of augmented reality, or maybe a new Tamagotchi-like keyring or a smartwatch will we'll come along and, and start another fad. But either way, the dog's legacy is still there. Dogs showed how artificial intelligence could be used not only to do technical things like solve complex problems and improve productivity, but also to fill emotional needs, to provide companionship and affection, to bring joy to our lives, 
to make us feel needed and loved. It showed a generation of girls and boys, but mostly girls, that games could be nurturing, not just destructive and violent. Games could be playful, open-ended. Games could be for them. And so could making and changing them and sharing them. It sounds so simple. But to many, this was a revelation that put them on the path to game development or web development or any kind of technical pursuit. It also opens the door to things like Neopets, which is a huge virtual pet community with the same creative spirit as the pets hexing community that took off just as the original run of pets games though certainly not the vibrant hexing community itself was winding down so the hexing community is is actually still around today although in the past few years it has really started to shrink and it made sure that the suits behind the money-making decisions in the games industry were aware that there's a valuable market outside of that core gamer demographic that they had actually just invented around the same time that these pets games were coming out. And when they were doubling down on sexist adverts and hyper-masculine heroes in hyper-violent worlds, there's something special about that, about the power of a clever business model and a game about owning virtual life a a digital cat or dog that lives inside your computer screen. But maybe the biggest lesson in all of this is that Santa Claus really knows his stuff. Rob Frewup now makes games for his daughter. He says he might have one or two commercial game projects left in him, but he's not sure he could do what he wants to in the current market, where AAA production tends to climb into the tens of millions of dollars. In any case, he's mainly just interested in her and doing things she can enjoy. The Life and Times of Video Games is written, edited, produced, and scored by me. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell other people about it. It'll also be a huge help. If you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast services, I'm on nearly all of them now. And if you could share a link or rave about it on social media. The Life and Times of Video Games is on Twitter and also Instagram at Life and Times VG. If you can afford to make a monthly donation to help me get the show to a point of long-term sustainability, head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. As thanks, you can get things like ad-free episodes and bonus content, and your name in the credits, like two of my current supporters, namely Simon Moss and Wade Dragascus. And you'll even get the chance, if you put in enough money, to pick a topic and boss me around on a future episode. I'm also happy to take one-off donations via PayPal, so if you've got a few bucks lying around and want to sound your appreciation, you can head to paypal.me slash mossrc and send the payment. As of a few months ago, there's one other way that you can support the show, and that's to listen through the Radio Public Android or iOS app. 
Radio Republic is a public benefit corporation that wants to make the podcasting ecosystem more sustainable for everyone. And part of that mission involves running a paid listens program that pays podcasters two cents every time a listener hears at least 60% of an episode in the Radio Public mobile app. So it's not too much trouble. Give it a try. Head to radiopublic.com to download the app and find out more. And you can find links to everything mentioned here at lifeandtimes.games. I'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode and hopefully sooner with a couple of little bonus things. Until then... My name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening. Adios.